Medical rewrites, medical rewrites, medical. And welcome to Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence-based medicine. I am Megan Jeffries. The Medical Rewrite today is for wedding crashers. The deep dives will be about tetrahydrozoline, the active ingredient in eye drops, and sugar alcohols. Please note that today's podcast will discuss poisonings found in the movie Wedding Crashers. If this is distressing, this might be an episode to skip. Let's talk Wedding Crashers data. It was released in 2005. The budget was $40 million. It brought in $289 million, a wild box office success. IMDb rates it a 7 out of 10, which is fairly high for a broad comedy. Rotten Tomato critics gave it 75%, and audience, one of the strange ones, audience gave it 70%. Very strange to see an audience score lower than critics for a comedy. It's currently streaming on Max and Hulu. For those of you that have not seen this gem of a movie recently, it's worth a watch. The gist of Wedding Crashers is about a friendship, Jeremy, played by Vince Vaughn, and John, played by Owen Wilson. When they're not mediating divorces, they're crashing weddings. The primary goal is to find women that are similarly interested in non-committal, sexual-based exercises. The last wedding of the season they attend is for the daughter of the U.S. Secretary of Treasury, William Cleary, who's played by Christopher Walken. Amazing. At the reception, John lock size with his daughter Claire becomes smitten Claire is played by Rachel McAdams she is dating a terrible person his name is Sack S-A-C-K I don't know if this is a family name it strikes me as odd that you would name your child after something you take home groceries in but hey that's fine he gets a bad name because he's playing a bad guy and this is played excellently by Bradley Cooper The third daughter is Gloria. It's played by Isla Fisher. And her and Jeremy sneak off during the wedding reception to the beach for some naked aerobics. John, meanwhile, back at the wedding, is charming enough to get an invite for an extended weekend to retreat to their family compound. Old money happening here. John's trying to get some alone time while they're on this extended weekend with Claire, but finds that sack... I, how do you how do you even say that my boyfriend's name is Sack? How many times are people going to say, no, it's Zach? No, Sack, like the bag. Right, okay, get to the point. Sack is always in the way and is a constant presence and obstacle, which leads to the following conversation. So I'm president of the Environmental Defense League. And I pick up this little sea otter and, and, and wipe off the oil from the tanker spill. All right, you gotta step this up already. I'm gonna give you the damn eye drops. I don't want them, it's too hardcore. Well, do you wanna be alone with her or not? Yes. What if you have these things in his drink and he'll be going down our toilet seat for the next 24 hours? I don't wanna do it. I can beat this guy. Let's be honorable for once. And the whiskers. And the oils, the oils flapping. He's getting. Give me the eye drops. Thank you. In the next scene, The family is seated at the dinner table, heads bowed in prayer, eyes closed. We see John squeeze what I'm estimating to be 5 to 10 mils of eye drop solution, which we're assuming contains tetrahydroxazoline, into Sack's wine glass. The wine glass contains about 100 mils of red wine. Three minutes later, we see that Sack has drank most of his wine. 
Fairly quickly afterwards, we hear the first sound of GI distress from SAC. To my ear, the GI sounds sound intestinal, not necessarily gastric. However, this is followed up by a couple of verps. So there is some gastric shenanigans happening after he drinks his poisoned wine. Everyone at the table is still eating, but some have finished their drinks at least. So I'm estimating the time between ingestion of the eyedrop wine to the first GI signs is 15 to 30 minutes. Next, we see Sack leaning over the toilet in a classic vomiting position. He looks sweaty. It's dark outside. So I'm estimating it's been at least a couple of hours since ingestion. That is the movie premise that we're dealing with. So let's tear it apart and do at least a fact check of this string of events. Let's start with the pharmacology of tetrahydrazoline. For one, tetrahydrazoline is an alpha-1 agonist that's used in eye drops and nasal sprays. Alpha-1 receptors are postsynaptic. They're located on blood vessels. That's what we typically think of where alpha-1 is located. Alpha-1 receptors are also on vascular smooth muscles, including cardiac, bladder, prostate, uterus, and also within the GI tract. When alpha-1s agonized, it increases intracellular calcium, causes vasoconstriction, and muscle contraction. Alpha-1 receptors on the liver cause glycogenolysis, the process of breaking down glycogen into glucose. All parts of the sympathomimetic pathway that increases cardiac output, increases serum glucose, and gives your brain and muscles enough energy for the flight or fight scenario. So either you're going to run away from the bear or fight the bear. Either way, you're going to need a lot of oxygen and glucose in the process, and that's where alpha-1 comes to play. When an alpha-1 agonist is applied topically in the nose and the eyes, its primary mechanism is to restrict blood vessels. That reduces blood flow. That decreases edema in the tissues because those tight junctions are now no longer loosey-goosey and leaking out fluid. So essentially, it results in less eye redness and less snot running down your nose. You still get systemic absorption even after normal dosages when this is given in the eyes and the nose. In a study of healthy volunteers that administered two drops of tetrahydrolazine, a total of 25 micrograms, serum concentrations peaked at 0.04 nanograms per mils after nine hours. So a slow absorption curve into systemic circulation, but nonetheless, you are still getting systemic concentrations even after eye and nasal application. At high concentrations, when tetrahydrozolazine is ingested orally, it's hypothesized that it spills over into alpha-2 receptors. So alpha-2 receptors are presynaptic, mainly found in the CNS. Agonism of alpha-2 receptors causes a negative feedback loop, which decreases the amount of epi, norepi, serotonin, dopamine, and GABA that's released. All the things that make fight or flight happen and all the things that make you happy and or relaxed. Those are decreased by agonism of the presynaptic alpha-2. The cardiovascular changes of this include a drop in heart rate and vascular tone. Tetrahylazoline also agonizes endimazole receptors in the brain, which inhibits sympathomimetic nervous system. So at high doses, we're going to see the opposite of the parasympathetic system. We're going to see much more relaxation and calmness and decreased cardiac output. There are postsynaptic alpha-2 receptors on intestinal epithelial cells, which decreases intestinal secretions, which would result in constipation, not diarrhea. So even if we assume SAC is having diarrhea and vomiting, neither are likely outcomes based on the mechanism 
of tetrahydrozolazine. Early toxicology reports from 1956, the first time I could find a good report about this, tetrahydrozolazine was summarized in the literature about a product called tyzine, T-Y-Z-I-N-E. The strength was 0.1%, twice of what that is in visine today. The study described the clinical course of three infants that had been given tyzine by their caregivers that was given intranasally, and subsequently they presented to the emergency department with profound drowsiness and lethargy. The authors vigorously call out the manufacturers for recommending the use in infants and children. They were peeved that this was even available for infants and children on the market. To further drive home their point, they did their own experiment, and they tested the recommended dose on 19 infants. I'm going to let that sentence sneak in for a hot second. They were mad at the recommended manufacturer's dose, so they did their own trial in 19 infants on what the dose should be in this particular infant. I think what they were trying to do is a toxicology curve, but again, on 19 infants. This study took place in the 1950s, which is approximately 20 years before IRBs became a thing. But nonetheless, here we are. They administered tyzine to 19 infants. Researchers found marked drowsiness in four infants and moderate drowsiness in six infants. The younger the child, the higher incidence of drowsiness. The authors set up a control group, just to drive home this point some more, with a rabbit study. They started with humans and then went to animals. So five rabbits got tyrosine, five rabbits got nothing. No rabbits were drowsy. The point being that infants, they are way more likely to get drowsy than adults and or rabbits. Since the 1950s, there are numerous case reports on tetrahydrozoline toxicities from oral ingestion, many with a focus on cardiovascular toxicity. One case report summarized the 16-year-old that consumed less than 15 mils of 0.05% tetrahydrozoline and developed SA node arrest. On an EKG, it showed up as an absence of P waves. The patient's heart rate was 44 beats per minute, five hours after ingestion of the spiked milk that he drank. Within 24 hours, the SA node was back in business and the normal heart rate and rhythm were returned. The patient only required supportive care, but nonetheless, this was reported in 2004, so not probably associated with an idea from wedding crashers, but there's definitely multiple media reports about people being poisoned with eye drops because of inspiration from wedding crashers. There are a couple of excellent case-based reviews that discuss the symptoms and management of tetrahydrozoline ingestion. It's published in the Journal of Toxicology in 2014. Link is in the show notes. In a much more depressing research area, there are also multiple case reports of terrible people using tetrahydrozoline to aid in sexual assault. So that was new for me. And one article described two women who consumed alcoholic drinks that were spiked with visine before they were sexually assaulted. Both women were able to recall some events of the assault but had periods of graying or blacking out. Both had blood and urine tested for tetrahydrozoline, which was present in the urine but not in the blood 23 hours later. Blood serum concentrations, very low, very short half-life, but you could still detect it in the urine. The third case details a man who was administered visine rectally. The person told him it was a lubricant. The man lost consciousness and was unable to recall any further events of the assault. Bleak, man, bleak. So in an attempt to bring up the general bleakness we find ourselves in, let's bring it back to the plot at hand. The purpose of poisoning sack was to cause him 
a distraction. In this case, a GI distress that would cause 24 hours-ish, which would allow John some alone time with Claire, hopefully woo her enough to where she leaves bag, I mean sack. Since we know that oral administration of tetrahydrazoline causes sedation and bradycardia and not GI distress, here we need a rewrite, an obvious rewrite. Place to start. Where should we start if we need 24 hours of alone time with someone else's partner? I think laxatives is A, too predictable for an interesting scene, a little too on the nose, and also unreliable, quite frankly, based on everyone else's GI tracts. Other medications I brainstormed that cause significant GI effects, metformin, you certainly got gas with that. Clavulanate, nice prokinetic agent, erythromycin, another prokinetic, metacopamide. Colchicine, great causer of diarrhea. All of these, the onset a little longer than we want. And we also have, the delivery is challenging. We could give a two gram dose of metformin, which should guarantee quite a lot of gas. I don't think you're going to be sick, but tremendous gas, uncomfortable gas. Very difficult to get sack to take two grams of metformin, I think, in, in a setting. Food options. So we could, we could poison him with some food. I thought about the potato chips that had the warning about anal leakage. Had to go back to the Wayback Machine to figure out what they were. Turns out they were sold as Lay's Wow in 1990 after the FDA approved Olestra as a fat substitute for fried foods. It was originally studied in the 70s as a cholesterol medication, but failed to meet any of the FDA standard objective measures to be a cholesterol medication. At that time, you needed to have a 15% reduction in lipids, and Olestra was unable to get it done. Then I remember other food options, the gummy bear diarrhea crisis from about 10 years ago. Amazon was selling sugarless Haribo gummy bears, and the reviews were amazing. BuzzFeed even did a collection of the reviews. This was done in 2014. I'll put the link just so everyone can enjoy these. One of my favorites. The cramping started about an hour later, and soon enough, I was bloated as a balloon at the Thanksgiving Day Parade. When the rumbling started, I sprinted down the hallway and made it to the bathroom just in time for the four horsemen of the apocalypse to stampede from my backside, laying waste to my home septic system and my will to live. After three hours of pelvis-shaking gummy bear assault, I was spongy. I was weak. I was surprised I had any bones left. I cursed Haribo with the little strength I could muster. I mean, Shakespeare-level uh, review here. Okay, what's the scene, though? What's the problem? What's happening with the gummy bears? A little investigation, and we now know the sugarless gummy bears were powered by a sugar substitute called maltitol. It's a little bit of false advertising. It's not really a sugar substitute as much as a sugar alcohol. Sugar alcohols are used in foods industry and in thickeners and sweeteners in place of sucrose, which is like the standard sugar, or in combination with multiple artificial sweeteners. There's seven sugar alcohols approved for use in food products. There's sorbitol, mannitol, isomalt, maltitol, lactolol, xylitol, and erythiotol. Sugar alcohol used in Haribo gummy bears was maltitol. When ingested, maltitol is hydrolyzed in the small intestine to glucose and sorbitol. Glucose rapidly absorbed per the use. Sorbitol not absorbed. This results in increased osmotic pressure in the intestines because we have a ton of sorbitol, just a free-floating molecule out there, which draws in a bunch of water, 
Aha's osmosis style, and then we get, ta-da, osmotic diarrhea. This is the same mechanism of why lactose and milk sugar causes diarrhea in some of us weaklings with a lactase deficiency. Drink a bunch of milk, has a bunch of lactose in it, it doesn't get absorbed, osmosis happens, osmotic diarrhea occurs. Because science is wonderful, there is a decent amount of data about maltitol and the dose to diarrhea curve. Many of these studies are done by food scientists looking to decrease sucrose content in food, but still have a sweet product. So they have tons of experiments with sugar alcohols and see how much sugar alcohol can we give to people before they get explosive diarrhea. I mean, what it is to be alive today with this science. Study from 2003 tested the digestive tolerance of increasing the dose of maltitol or sucrose in chocolate bars in 12 healthy male volunteers. First phase of the study, the maltitol chocolate bars were given randomly and only occasionally. They didn't want these chocolate bars to change your microbiome and therefore change how you absorbed or didn't absorb these sugar alcohols. The mean threshold dose of maltitol before onset of diarrhea was 92 grams. So they could push it up to 92 grams before these 12 healthy males had osmotic diarrhea. Second phase of the study was daily chocolate bar consumption. The mean threshold of maltitol before onset of diarrhea was essentially the same at 93 grams, meaning it doesn't matter how much maltitol you ate, you still hit this diarrhea threshold around 90 grams. Another study completed a dose escalation experiment. This was 27 healthy female volunteers each volunteer started with 15 grams of maltitol once a week. The dose was increased by 5 grams every week up to 45 grams until they developed diarrhea. So a dose response curve beautifully planned out. 22 of the women developed diarrhea before maxing out at 45 grams. Five women, however, had guts of steel and maxed out at 45 grams. Median dose of the whole population of these 27 healthy females was 35 grams, so much lower than the dose required for the all-male study. Five women required 45 grams before diarrhea onset. Four only needed 40 grams, seven needed 35 grams, 20 needed 30 grams, two patients needed 25 grams, and two only needed 20 grams in order for a diarrhea to happen. So now that we have viable and reliable diarrhea-producing product, we still need to figure out how we're going to get it to sack. We need it to be in a small container, for instance, an eyedropper, that would allow us to spike sacks wine while everyone is praying. I think we should shoot for a 100-gram dose based on the all-male study of the chocolate bars because we don't want to take any chances here. This might be our only time to score some time with Claire. Per an organic chemistry review article, maltitol is highly soluble in water. We can get 200 grams of maltitol into 100 mils of water if that water is 37 degrees Celsius. Quite toasty, but maybe John can keep the bottle either in his armpit or in his underoos to keep it warm and avoid it from falling out of solution. If we're able to keep it at a hot enough temperature to remain in liquid form, to deliver a 100-gram dose still requires 50 mils of fluid. So we got to think of options. 50 mils is going to be a lot to spike someone's drink during a prayer. So if we do one dropper full, if we can get a half dose, 25 mils, during the prayer, that's 50 grams of maltazol, that could be the trick. But it's a coin flip based on the chocolate bar study. The onset of diarrhea is usually within an hour 
for everybody. So if Sack doesn't excuse himself from the table before the end of dinner, then John needs to make him an after-drink cocktail, like a, like a Manhattan or some sort of whiskey bourbon that has cherry syrup in it. Old-fashioned, I think, pretty popular. And they can sweeten it up with this maltitol because it's a sugar substitute. It will taste sweet. This should guarantee some diarrhea if we can get another dose of 50 grams in there. John will likely need to redose sack in the morning if he wants to go on the sailing trip alone with Claire again. So again, another 50 or 100 grams based on the nights before dose response curve to make sure that sack is sick enough. This could just be a smoothie scenario. Hey, sack, heard you were sick last night. Here's a smoothie. They're sweet anyways. 100 grams of maltitol in the smoothie. This rewrite makes me so happy. There's so many different parts to this. One, we get to debunk visine toxicology. Two, we get to find an absolute guarantee for diarrhea. Three, I figured out why lactose is such a problem in many people. Yeah, tons of wins here. Love this rewrite. As always, check out show notes for references used in this episode. If you know of a movie that deserves a medical rewrite, click the link in the show notes and complete the form. This has been a podcast presentation by me, Megan Jeffries. Production and editing by Ann Conley. She's the cool side of the pillow. Music by Brandon Meager. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes available now for free wherever you get your podcasts.